Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Magical Musings. Uh, I am Joy, and on the other end of the line is Brian. Hello again, folks. Alright, and so today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about a reality check for everybody that's out there. This is going to be episode number 19. Um, this is uh, in December of 2014, so we're probably going to be mentioning things that are happening right around there. So grab your tea, get a cookie, get some cookies, milk and cookies if you're uh, into doing the whole Santa Claus thing, and uh, we'll sit down and have some fun. Okay, um, Brian and I kind of kicked this around for a little bit because I came up with this idea of uh, actually talking about the 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 books the the one on one books tend to paint this really rosy picture of how wonderful everything is uh, when you actually find a community and you sit down and you're with them and uh, they're with you and everything's all wonderful and oh and holy and everything. And, <laughs> It it really starts messing yes. up, and it's a rude awakening when you actually get into the community and find out that they're people, you know. Um, so <laughs> we're going to talk about that. We're also going to yes. talk a little bit about uh, the paid pagan clergy debate because uh, that's going to tie into it. When you start thinking about uh, the pagan community as a whole – Got to understand that any community that you're part of is made up of one thing, people. And no matter how you approach them, no matter what you do, they're going to remain people. They're going to have good moods. They're going to have bad moods. They're going to be nice. They're going to be petty. They will backstab you. They will not talk to you. They will do lots of other things. Um, <laughs> just about every... It's true. Every every dynamic you can possibly think of in the workplace, in school, in um, life itself, just meeting somebody walking down the road, um, you're going to find in the pagan community somewhere. Um, and that includes the freaks and pedophiles. Uh, we had a situation several years ago where there was one pedof uh, pedophile who was supposedly a major member of the pagan community, who was advertising on various websites that he would initiate anybody that wanted to be initiated into Wicca by having sex with them. Uh, but they had to be somewhere from 11 years old to about 14. And he would travel to them and have sex with them, and then they would be a witch. Um, it was, As far as I know, this guy was never caught. So yeah, we've got those two. That's weird. Yeah, it was. Um, do you do you did you remember seeing that when it was running around? I can't say I ever did. I mean, I I wasn't really active on like Witchbox and things like that, so I can't say I recall seeing or hearing about that. Well, mostly when I remember seeing it, it, uh, it was back somewhere I think around two thousand five. Or so, and it was a big thing, and uh, many multiple pagan groups got together and were working with uh, the FBI to try to find this guy. Because, I mean, solicitation of a minor over the internet is about 16 different violations of American law. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's, it's true. one of those and things that you just had to get him out. Go ahead. 
Well, I mean, it brings to mind the um, the whole like issue with certain uh, authors that mm. are you know they're, they've existed forever. They opened a, a school of witchcraft and stuff, and there's there was material in one of their books that was. Um, in case you don't know, of, it's, it's this is Gavin and Yvonne Frost. Uh, founders of Circle yeah. Wicca. Um, the book that's being talked about is uh, the Good Witches book, um, and it's still one of those really big controversies. But go ahead, Brian. Is it really? Yes, it is. I, I mean, I remember hearing the news about it, like mutterings in the community about how weird it was. But then when I got a hold of the the reissue of the book, I was like, I can't see anything like that. So I was like, okay, interesting, but well, to yeah, my I mean, okay, I've never read the book, so let me start with that. Um, but I have, I, I, I have enough respect that I mean, Gavin and Yvonne Frost were around at the very beginning. I mean, they're right up there with Buckland and uh, Doreen Valente and Z Budapest and, you know, all the real elders that, you know, started mm -hmm. all of this. So while I respect them for all the work that they did to get Wicca recognized, get the paganism recognized, and, you know, all the activities that they did, that particular section of their book just flies all over me. Essentially, for those of you that are not in the know, essentially what it says is that there are rites that the priest of the coven and the context here is that this is a family coven uh, because this is passed down through word of mouth from parents to child, um, that the priest initiates uh, the young girls into the coven by using a special tool that he and his daughter have carved together that is phallic-shaped. And essentially, essentially, dad takes his daughter and, uh, in a sacred ceremony, rapes her with a dildo that they made together. Okay, and this is, when you, when you clean up the language, that's pretty much what it is. And it's, when, <laughs> sorry. This is, it's true, when you cut it down to the bare, I mean, it's, it's not quite as poetic and flowing as, as they're supposed to have made it sound. <clears throat> And from what I understand, all the reissues of the book still have that stuff in there. Uh, they've had multiple opportunities hmm. to go in and change it, to go in and remove it, to modify it, to uh, set it up so that it's not that blatant. Creepy? Mm. <laughs> that would be one word for it. But it's the, the context <laughs> that they have this in is that this is a, a, a pagan rite that – is supposed to happen present day. The where it really gets weird is that is that implication that it's still happening now. To my understanding, when this really blew up in the community right around 2001, 
um, and really was just getting all over everybody. It was on every single board you went to, uh, all the email lists and everything like that. They were um, – it was – I lost my train of thought here. Excellent. I love this. Um, I think they were trying to justify it somehow, but the implication was this, this is happening now today. And there were people that claimed that there was a cult down in Australia someplace that actually practiced all of this right out of the book, exactly the way it should be, uh, with the, the fathers raping the daughters and sleeping with them and everything like that. Now, I don't remember, I don't remember there being any actual evidence. It was all anecdotal. But yeah, I can't recall. Yeah, when when you start looking at something like that and going, okay, it's anecdotal evidence. We don't have any. It's it's word of mouth. There's no arrest reports or anything like that. You know, it's even if it is anecdotal, there's still that one sicko out there that would use it as justification, and that concerns True. me. Just because there's that one sicko, you know, even if there's 10 mm-hmm. million people who wouldn't do it, there's that one person that would. And that one well, person and that he's th- the one they would hold up as the example. This is what witchcraft is nowadays. Exactly. This is the work of the devil, etc. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's and then, of course, I mean, you can turn that around and say, well, I mean, the Branch Davidians had their thing, uh, and, you know, here's this and that, and it never really gets resolved. It just... Well, I don't really want... People sling mud. I really don't want Wicca and the pagan faiths out there getting conflated with the Branch Davidians, (laughs) or the the cult in uh, California that killed themselves because the asteroid was coming, or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Any of those groups. I mean, I just want to. There's a little crowbar separation there. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and for for the record, folks, um, I sort of googled Heaven's Gate just at random to see what was going on with them. Apparently, they're still active and existing, but in a smaller scale. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they're waiting for now. I mean. It's going to be a while before the next comet comes along. Oh, Lord. (laughs) They're going to be, like, living and dying, still waiting for the comet. How are we going to get out of here? It was kind of interesting. I got interviewed by a TV network, um, the local news about that at one point. Um it happened, and I happened to be a contact for one of the reporters, and she gave my name to somebody that was actually investigating the cult and, and the Heaven's Gate thing, and he called me up and came out and interviewed me about it because I had the only reasonable explanation of what it might be, why they would do something like that. And I'm like, well, you know, the self-sacrifice is – something that they might have done and he's like well wow okay well i mean if you if you really look into things like um oh god who is it that wrote the golden bow graves Mm -hmm. um the golden bow talks about 
you know, the sacrifice of the king and, you know, human sacrifice and all that kind of stuff is a, you know, Are you sure you're not talking about the white goddess? I've, I've not read the white goddess. I've attempted it several times, but it, it's, it reads sort of like the Book of Mormon as far as I'm concerned. Okay, um, it's Fraser that did the Golden Bow. That's it. Thank you. That's yeah, Robert the Graves did the White oh. Goddess. That's right. Sorry. I had Rihanna no now being the goddess of research, too. So I've got two of them shoving things in my face going, here, this is what you're looking for. Oh. <laughs> the sad part is I had, I had the Golden Bow sitting on a shelf, and I could have walked over and got it. <laughs> it's all right. All of my metaphysical libraries packed up right now. It's all electronic. Which which goes back to the very first Magical Mondays where we were talking about how your book of shadows, you know, you have your disk of shadows and your hard drive of shadows, and so there you go. And that <laughs> terabyte drive that you only pull out for a special occasion, mm. full of all those PDF files that you've collected for 20 years. <laughs> mm. I want to but, tell you something. I went through and started organizing my electronic book library. It with uh, the fiction and everything, I've got something like 3,500 books of various types, of which approximately a thousand of them are various metaphysical books. So, you know, you've read every single one three times. Mm, actually, I've skimmed most of them. I haven't really read in depth on all of them. Some of them I have read in depth, but it's not. <laughs> One of those cases. That's of, my problem too. Yeah, I I <laughs> and know my the library covers all sorts of stuff. So <laughs> I know the general contents, and I can find the information I need. Uh, so that's usually what you what it's used for. Okay, so um, that's one type of person that you might meet uh, in a pagan community. Um, they're by far the the odd person of the lot. Okay, pedophiles are very, very rare. Um, the pagan community as a whole tends to police itself pretty vigorously for people like that and get rid of them, turn them in, despite the all the warnings that are in the Ardanes saying that we should shouldn't turn our own people over to the the, the man and have the have. Uh, Justice from the outside world, you know, pronounced on a witch. In a, no, that when you start getting into hurting children and stuff like that, the, the line is really way crossed, and um, it there's no there's really no mercy there. Um, however, and I think part of the problem too is the imaginary satanic rituals from the 80s that freaked people out so badly. Yeah, and that is one big factor to it, too. Go ahead. Well, because I'm thinking that, like, the imagined rituals that, you know, exist in people's heads are always so much weirder and more twisted than, like, even the most unusual sort of rituals I've ever encountered in books and stuff. Because, like, (laughs) You can kind of see the the hidden fetishism that they're you know sort of trying to cover up with this imaginary scenario. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so. and it's it's there. It's always there. And unfortunately, because the pagan community is very open and accepting of alternate sexualities, including um, BDSM and um, other things like that, um, those odd practices get sort of rolled into the community and everybody gets painted with the same brush. I want to tell you yeah. something. I have never been to any kind of uh, organized Sabbath, Esbeth, uh ceremony, ritual, or anything where there was an orgy or even a hint of an orgy. Um, and I don't know anybody that ever has either. But if you ask... Well, it's... Go. See, like, I've only ever encountered the mention of actual orgies in in books like mm-hmm. i've got a couple by john hughes which talk about druid sexual practices and um the alchemical use of of plants and mm-hmm. he talks about his particular tradition in wales uses sexual orgies and so on and it's like okay that's great you know doesn't mean everyone else is going to be doing it but so be it yeah, and I only ever really encountered it once uh, in a book called Heather Confessions of a Witch by uh, Halzer. Uh, supposedly, this was a true account of a Gardnerian Wiccan coven in New York that was torn apart by this girl that got initiated, and there was actual sex in the circle uh, during one of the espit rites that they were doing, despite the fact that the priest had stated n- numerous times that she was not going to be a priestess. She had no rights, that he was banishing her from the coven, and then all of a sudden he's having sex with her in the same context. And I was like, What? Let me give y'all the, the the lowdown on this. The not the book, but on the the sex in the circle. Ninety nine percent of the time the sex is going to be symbolic. There's going to be a cup, there's gonna be a dagger, and that's gonna be the sex. Okay? There is very <laughs> rarely and I can't think of anything where it actually happens in reality, but it could, um, somebody actually physically having sex. Now, getting aroused, certainly, that could happen. And if you're, you know, working sky-clad, or naked, as the, the term means, then it's very possible. And there's people that could, you know, come on to each other at a circle. And I don't... I I expect that that happens quite a lot, especially between people who are partners. But the actual sex act, the the penetration, the male male on female, (coughs) is probably not going to happen where there's an audience. (coughs) Simply due to the fact... It's true. You know, it's... Who wants 12 people standing around staring at you? While you're trying to perform with a member of the opposite sex, I mean, it's talk, true. I mean, talk about a mood breaker, <laughs> or the same sex. That's true. Well, I mean, 
see, like every time I've ever seen that mentioned in in books, it it is between like consensual couples who you know who happen to be you know pagan and you know sharing the path. So I mean, I mean again, Hughes refers to these sort of open meetings where yeah, you know we we say come one come all and you know it's a big celebration of beltane or whatever and it you know it's like okay i i guess i could see that but it it's not something that like a lot of people are going to do especially since we live in a very self-conscious culture um culture a what culture a sexually repressed culture Yes, we do actually. I mean, um, yeah, and I mean, I suppose it would happen if if a group was working like over a long period of time and they'd grown comfortable with each other and so on. But, but it would probably never, ever, ever happen with somebody new coming into the group. That's that's something that. If it did happen, it happens. It would happen between long-time members of the same group, um, consensual sex, like you said, usually between married pairs or um, people already in a relationship. And it's not every, anything you're ever going to see casually displayed uh, or in a situation where you are circling with them for this holiday – and they're not going to drop down onto the floor and spread legs. I mean, you're more likely to see it at a furry convention than you will at a pagan convention. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because I'm not sure how everyone else's experience are or experiences are of public rituals, but there's... A level, there's a, a quite a varied level of um, attractiveness among the people that are there, and <laughs> I, I can't see everyone getting off on seeing everyone else naked because uh, there's with, not always a pretty picture. Well, and actually, with public rituals like that, where it's quite a number of groups together or quite a number of people uh, from various groups together, you're probably never going to see nudity in that context. The only time I've seen ritual nudity is when it was an intimate working group, people that knew each other very well, knew that each other was um, <clears throat> willing to sh to display everything, and knowing that each other had gotten rid of that embarrassment section of themselves, at least in relation mm -hmm. to, to nudity. You know, where you don't care if somebody walks into the bathroom while you're taking a shower or taking a dump. You know, it's like, oh, hi, you know, I have these bodily parts and you have those bodily parts and, okay, and, you know. And <laughs> it's, it's true. It's, where it's just, you know, that casual. But at a public ritual, because of the various laws on the books against public, quote-unquote, indecency, and I did the air fingers, um, you're not going to see it because nobody wants to be standing in a circle um, with, the camp, with the bonfire in front of you 
holding hands, singing, and the police come up with the blue and red lights and put you in handcuffs and drag you away to jail like that. Because they will. It's true. <laughs> yeah, they will. <laughs> and then you'll be naked in handcuffs in a jail cell mm-hmm. with, with someone who's the... fully clothed and probably a little bit off. Probably. And so your your evening will change quite drastically. <laughs> so yeah, that's like I said, in a public space, that's never going to happen. But even more than that, I mean, we're getting off onto you know this is something that you got to think of when you're looking at groups. Don't be afraid of that. Understand that, for the most part, the people that are in these groups that you're trying to join with. Uh, are in very close emotional relationships with each other. Okay, I've seen it likened uh, at times to being in a group marriage. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly how it is. It is people who are deliberately letting down their guards with each other for a goal of whatever at this group. Okay, they're very vulnerable. They're very exposed, and they are trusting the people that are in the group to not take advantage of it, and to not hurt them if they have a chance to. So, yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's in some ways being in a coven or a, a pagan group like this is closer than being you know blood relatives to each other. Quite often, yes. And, you know, so it's it's that's something that you've got to look at and consider in your own needs when you're looking at these groups, okay? And, yeah, like we said at the top of the show, these people, they have their own wants, they have their own desires, they have their own needs, and they are going to act true to themselves no matter what happens. So if their personality is bitchy and backbiting and backstabbing, they're going to be doing that, you know, and they may say to your it's face, true. oh, no, I wouldn't do that. You know, no, they're going to be doing that. See, I came into it with the, with the idea that the people in these pagan groups, you know, were the best of the best that and this is what the, the books primed me for is that the people that were in Wicca had found everything that was worst about themselves and had burned it out ruthlessly trying to perfect themselves in such a way as they could be a credit to their deities. Okay? And in the ideal, that's exactly what should happen. In the reality, however, that happens maybe once every thousand people. And I tell you, if you find somebody like that, treasure them. Because they are rare. Most of the mm-hmm. people in paganism are going to be the same person that they always were. Just a different deity that they're praying to. Okay? Yes, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it reminds me actually of one of my attempted... No, I guess it would be the attempt I made at forming a druid group um, with a few... Well, with a coworker and a few other people. And... There was one guy who figured that because he'd read all the darkest arcane black magic books that he should be in charge of the group. And 
you know, he had no experience with ritual and he had this motivation of control and power and, you know, black magic and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm not sure where you're getting the idea that druids are fixated on black magic or controlling other people. Um, you know, so like, yeah, I mean, he was motivated by the idea of that he was going to control other people and be in charge and all this stuff. And, and I was like, um, maybe we should just put it to a vote, you know, like there's a half dozen of us. Let's reach consensus about this rather than decide that you are going to be in charge because you decided you're going to be in charge. (laughs) And yeah, so he didn't like me after that got to be annoying and difficult. And that's so. something and that brings up something else. Uh there was circulating in uh a lot of the pagan groups that I was about uh a book about troll spotting a while back. Um this was based off of a uh book called Enemies in the Church that was about deliberately destructive people in various religions and how to handle them. It was written uh, by a Christian minister um, for other Christian leaders. And you could find it at a Christian bookstore. I almost went out and got got it, but I couldn't ever just get the money together to go get it. Um, But they came out with a pagan version of it, and it's called Troll Spotting. And it's like 11 chapters, 200 and some odd printed eight and a half by eleven pages and it's wonderful because there are people who are going to be deliberately disruptive why because they can be and they're called trolls and you have to to just get the attitude of okay i'm not going to do anything with this person i'm not going to acknowledge them i'm not going to feed them i'm not going to give any power to them because all they're doing is trying to screw things up because they can't and, yeah. you know, once you boil it all down, that's all you can really do. But there was a lot in there about the psychology behind it and how to how to know if somebody's doing that. And the secrecy that is part of a lot of these groups helps because you have these people that you go to circle with. But for the most part, you don't know much about their lives. You may not know what they do for a living. You may not know where they live. You may not know what they're like when they get out. You you don't know if they sing in the shower or not. You know, or even their mundane name in a lot of cases. You know, because some they have have group names, uh, and they don't use their mundane name. So if somebody starts whispering about this person Oberon over here who you know likes to to screw little girls with dildos, you know. There's no evidence that says anything contrary. And the only way that you can find out is to go to that person and confront them or try to, you know, get into their life. So, and and the secrecy tends to exacerbate that simply due to the fact that people are paranoid about their own privacy. And they're not going to share things and details about their life. In a lot of cases. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the key reasons for the tradition of craft names, um, because you know, I mean, you read in some books, there's you know celebrities in in particular covens or whatever, and they have a vested interest in maintaining that you know separation between their professional and you know spiritual lives, mm-hmm. um, because paganism is not always well received by you know those who are casting for movies and whatnot so um yeah um i don't the, know the allusion he's making is that uh uh stevie nicks uh is a witch uh, as far as i know she's not but it's a nice thing to bandy around <laughs> the the campfire occasionally well, I wasn't thinking that specifically, but it it wouldn't have surprised me if she had been, but no, thanks. You've just destroyed my entire vision of her. Oh, God. I I'm just sorry. visioned her as a, a broom riding witch. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, seriously. I can imagine she must be. Hearing I mean, this news about Stevie Nicks. Yeah, the the lady. Normal people. What? <laughs> <laughs> she wrote anyway. that most memorable song that became that rose petal spell scene in Practical Magic. Oh my god! <laughs> and she's the, not a witch. No, the the it's been kicked about for for decades. That she's a witch. Supposedly, uh, the group that she came from uh, was out in uh, an area called Herlong, California, which is like 30 miles from nowhere. It's in the middle of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The actual city of Herlong uh, consists of five trailer parks, ten churches, and one convenience store. Oh, and the entrance to the giant... uh, army depot there where they have lots of stuff stored how do i know this ufos they store the ufos there yeah and she was supposedly from that area and i heard quite a number of times there was these all these witches in the area and i'm like oh that's okay that's nice to know and never was able (laughs) to find them gosh (laughs) actually it's funny because like Apparently, Victoria, where I live, is rumored to be, like, BC's biggest Satanist population. And I'm like, okay, I'm guessing, first of all, that Satanist is being defined by Christians somewhere, you know, and includes a fairly large number of pagans. Um, Because, actually, I think I just come for a visit, like, a few years before I moved here and and someone was telling me this, and I was like, there's a Satanist population here? <laughs> okay. Somehow I just pictured more black, if that was the case. But, <laughs> you know, there's nothing visible in, in the city that even implies there's something dark and sinister and satanic here. Oh, I mean, gonna, you're you're yeah. lucky if you find any pagans around here. <laughs> Yeah, and you're going to find that all over the place. I mean, there was a, a mill in um, one area that I was living in that 
supposedly had satanic rites going on down in the basement. And I uh, went there with Mary one time, and it, it's a beautiful place. It was shot uh, in the movie um, Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful place, but we went down into the basement and it was like, Ooh, yes, spooky energy in the area. Ooh. And somebody had done some graffiti on the wall or something. And it was like, yes, this is such a ooey, ooey area. (laughs) I was trying to impress her and it was bullshit. (laughs) Undoubtedly. Yes. Can't you smell the, the blood on those saws? (laughs) God, I was such an idiot when I was young. Anyway. <laughs> Anyhow. I think we've all had those spaces. Yes. And, uh, thankfully, most people grow out of them. Um, I know I had that phase, and I was in it for several years, and mostly got out of it, but I don't know. Other people would have to tell me whether I'm sane or not. I keep questioning it, and it keeps coming back unknown. Uh, I think if you were insane, you probably would tell yourself, you aren't crazy. Oh, probably. There's nothing to doubt. Probably. It's one of those, yeah. I'm insane, it's, I'm sane, it's the rest of the world, it's not, you know, type thing. Agreed. Um, okay, um, now of somebody that you're probably going to meet more often than the the horn dog pagan is uh the questionable lifestyle pagan and this is the person that does something that they say is related to paganism that either squicks you out or is just so far out there in la la land that you go how does that relate to paganism the person that I'm thinking about was a gentleman that I knew quite a number of years ago uh, who was also a survivalist uh, who in the name of teaching his child uh, how to survive on their own and how to survive in the wilderness uh, supposedly drove their child uh, 10 miles away from the home into the middle of uh, woods and dropped them off with the contents of their pockets and made them find their own way home. Uh, And unfortunately, upon questioning, yeah, he actually did do this. Uh, Lost custody of his children because of it. uh, Sued to get custody of uh, one child back um, and was denied multiple times. And the pagan community was rallying around him so that they could in the local area, so that they could um, get his child back for him. And that's questionable enough to my mind that it should be illegal, and he shouldn't have the child. However, it's one of those things that can be related to paganism. Uh, and the spirituality, because that was practiced by Native Americans, by Vikings, you know, and other groups. Well, that's that's kind of what I was thinking, was like, because for me, and if you remember um, our talk with Galena back last December, um, 
She actually said the same thing. She mm-hmm. was like, if I had to do rites of passage, I would drop my kids off in the woods with a knife. And I think a lot of parents find that really unusual nowadays. Questionable. Well, because it's so <laughs> different from our mainstream lifestyle now. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, as I've mentioned numerous times before, one of my most fascinating interests is um, rites of passage. And that's like, there are various levels of involvement with that. I mean, there's, it's not like you're just dropping your kid off in the middle of nowhere. Presumably any sane parent who was going to do this for their child would have prepared them by Mm -hmm. teaching them skills that would get them through that ordeal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually used to remember um, hearing stories of some of my scouters whose own scouters to kind of get them to the transition point between scouting or scouts and venturers. Mm -hmm. Um, They would drop them off, you know, out of town and say, figure your own shit out. Right. And so presumably these children came back alive because the stories tended to be, and then we became venturers. So I was like, that sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, there are a lot of parents who react to that situation as that's just, I can't believe you would do that. Yeah, but see, so, it, presuppo- it presupposes first off that there's a lot of training beforehand and that this is the culmination of all of that training and the proving of the the pudding by tasting it. And without knowing that all that training was done beforehand, then it becomes abuse. Uh, to, if I'm remembering correctly, and Mary's probably going to smack me if I'm not – uh, this guy uh, was dropping his 10-year-old off, daughter, off in this version. version. Now, Okay, that might be a bit extreme. Yeah. And 10 years old is a bit young. In, in October, you know, when it gets down to, to 20 degrees because we're in Texas and, you know, there's lots of open sky where all the heat evaporates off and hypothermia overnight becomes a very real possibility. You know, it's the okay. It's yeah, ju- I, I, it's just enough that you go, "What the fuck were you thinking?" But there's enough validity to it as a rite of passage for the same thing, because I went through something similar in Scouts myself. Um. Where you know it was uh, it was an initiation to a thing called the Order of the Arrow, and it was a night and a day of not talking, of doing service, of spending time with your own thoughts, and it was supposed to be a crucible to 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 see who could obey and who could take their own ego out of the way to allow the, the, the change to take place inside of themselves. Okay. And honestly, I think that's one of the things I admire about the BSA. Um, the Order of the Arrow concept was something I encountered in my various readings while I was a scout leader. And 
yeah, I mean that the that sort of thing fascinated me. Mm-hmm. But again, with the whole rites of passage thing, I mean, it, it's like, why wouldn't we do this? Because it can be. be... Unfortunately, this is this is one thing that I'm going to rail about for a little bit. Unfortunately, um, society has dumbed down everything so that even physical sensations are no longer you can't feel them anymore. I mean, I don't know how it was when you grew up in Canada, but when I was little, we yes had TV. We would stay inside. We would watch TV some. But we would skin our knees uh, on the bikes, mm-hmm. and it would be like, ow, okay, it hurts. Let me stick a rag on it. Okay, we're going to be okay. Um, I had a, a friend who was a hemophiliac, and I didn't know he was. And we were goofing around in his backyard uh, on his bicycle, and I did this trick, and it was just so awesome, wicked, cool that he tried it, but it messed up. And he... Uh, wound up going into a rusty barbed wire fence at about 10 miles an hour on his bike and coming back and he's pouring blood from you know multiple puncture wounds and everything like that if that had happened today I probably would have been sued and in a yeah. lot of trouble um, and they would have been you know posting signs everywhere and that I was an abuser or something like that you know at the time he went crying into his mother she patched him up, got him to the doctor. They got him the the shot of the clotting factor, and that was it. You know, I got yeah. talked to, I got yelled at, I got spanked, but it wasn't. It was okay. Kids are outside; they're going to get hurt. The kids was tougher when I was a kid. Well, it's not that. It, <laughs> I mean, that's the general idea. You know, you hear about Grandma walking five miles through the snow uphill both ways to uphill. get to school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and <laughs> my, Mary's grandmother actually did do that. Mary's mother actually did do that. Five miles to school every day, and it was uphill both ways. Of course, it was downhill both ways, too. <laughs> But, you know, it's (laughs) pretty soon it's going to, well, I didn't have damn jetpacks when I was five years old. I'm telling you right now, I had to walk. It's true. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, we were riding without helmets, and we were, you know, out in the bogs and ravines and scratching the shit out of our arms and legs and bleeding all over everything and it was fine i had a skateboard that had hard hard vinyl wheels on it not plastic not rubber but vinyl and i only had uh knee pads and elbow pads and a helmet i skinned the crap out of my hand i mean i ripped the 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 flesh off of the palm of my hand all the way back to the wrist at one point, because I was skating down this very gentle slope, and this tiny little pea-sized rock got under the wheel, and the wheel stopped, and I went flying. And my hand came down, and I landed on the palms of my hand, and the, the skin was gone. You know, and it was like, okay, well, that fucked up, you know. I didn't stop riding my uh, skateboard. Nobody got sued. <laughs> was, you know. Yeah, actually, it's funny because, like, one of the worst things I experienced as a kid was 
the neighbor kid had this like four wheeled bike that was like probably several hundred pounds of, you know, steel frame and, you know, it was a double chain. It was meant for two riders and, um, he had a sloping driveway and he and I would ride it around and, you know, goof around on it and stuff. We went up one day up to the top of his driveway and he got out for some reason, I think to fetch something so that it wouldn't get in the way of the bike or whatever, whatever you want to call the thing. And I couldn't hold on to the weight of it because there was no brakes. So it rolled back down the driveway hit the little ledge at the bottom of the driveway and flipped over against the fence. And I ended up with like two black eyes <laughs> and I'm sure other injuries that I don't recall. Um, I just remember that night having the weirdest dream I've ever had in my life where my two eyes floated out of my head <laughs> and I was chasing them around the house trying to put them back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I that you know they were still neighbors after that. You know, there was no court case, there was no issue with it. It was just oops, boys being boys, got injured, got over it, and they yeah. survived. You know. So but that was, you know, that's I don't know. It's things have gotten very very different in as time passed. And I understand that there is an impulse to protect, but too many times there, if you protect from too much, then they don't have the coping mechanisms for everything else. Um, yes. One of my big criticisms about uh, Star Wars and Yoda is um, – you know how Yoda is constantly talking about, oh, you don't even want to think about doing anything with the dark side. And, you you know, once you start down that path, you're going to be dark side forever. And hate, anger, and fear is the, the worst thing. And then they show all these little children that are presumably taking it, taken out of their creches, you know, like at yeah. three, four, five months old and trained from that point in time. Till they're, you know, adults and Jedi Knights and everything. Well, if they're trained in that way, where they're told, don't feel anger, don't feel hatred, don't feel fear, but they're not given any of the coping mechanisms for dealing with it, then of course you're going to lose them the very first time they're actually scared of something. They're not. They're going to feel this emotion, and they're not going to know how to deal with it, and they're gone to the dark side. But I think Yoda was an Orthodox Jedi. <laughs> you know, there there's like the liberal ones. You know, there's there's fundamentalists. Yoda was an Orthodox. Yeah, I like um, Qui Gon's uh, attitude better. He was what's called a gray Jedi, who uh, understood that there, that it is the play between light and dark that causes life to exist. You have to have the light. You have to have the dark. You can't have just one or the other. And it was one of the, the big things, the prophecy, talking about how he's going to, uh, how Anakin is going to balance the Force. Well, here you have 10,000 Jedi, all light 
Force users, and you have two Sith, Dark Force users, and he's going to balance mm-hmm. the Force. That's not getting rid of all of the Dark Jedi, because that's imbalancing it. That means either yeah. creating 9,998 more Sith, or murdering 9,998 Jedi, which is what happened. Because in <laughs> Episode 4, you have two Sith, the Emperor and Vader, and you have two Jedi, Yoda and Obi-Wan. There you go. True. There's the balance. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that is uh, true, actually. Yeah, it was it was a revelation when I realized that. Anyhow, uh, getting back to communities... <laughs> Because it all relates and to tarot. And it all relates to tarot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh. <laughs> For those of you that are new, that was a, that was a shtick that we had on Tarot Talk. Uh, we'd get off onto tangents and talk about everything, and then we'd relate it back to the tarot cards that we were working with that week. <laughs> it's true. And we were, pretty, we were getting pretty talented at doing that. Yeah, we were. <laughs> We were lassoing clouds of bullshit and, and just sort of tucking it into the meaning of the magician. And there you go. I mean, you know, <laughs> of course the magician relates to a car coming at you because, you know, there's the light of creation and then there's the light of the car. <laughs> and then there's the impact of that moment of creation. And there's the impact of the things that the magician is creating on the altar. So there you go. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, folks, if you like our sense of humor now, it's probably because we cultivated it over tarot talk and all that stuff. We we tend to let ourselves get quite ridiculous. Yes, we did. <laughs> we didn't really have very many governors on that one. Oh, okay. Governors <laughs> for language, basically, because we were on blog talk radio. But other than that, there it was pretty free for all. We we had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> I I really enjoyed it. Uh, and doing the tarot talk, I was. Uh, br- you got to understand, Brian was the MC. It was his uh, podcast, um, and I was an invited guest. And he would call me, and I'd do uh, the the two hours of tarot uh, every week. I enjoyed that so much. I really did. I've never really said this, Brian, but thank you so much for that opportunity. I loved doing it, and I loved doing this show. And so now we're going to go into the Pass the Hat version uh, section of this program and (laughs) say, you know, we like doing this. (laughs) We like doing this. We enjoy doing this. I mean, we have fun with it. So, you know, if you like hearing it, let us know. Either email us or contact us through the website. I mean, we got an email today uh, from some lady that was asking me about uh, four non-goths and uh, why Wiccan suck and where she went. And it's like, I have no earthly idea. But, you know... Nor do I. Huh? I got that same email. I was like, uh... I have no idea what those are. Like, why are you asking? <laughs> yeah, no, Four Non-Goths uh, had Why Wiccan Suck, and actually Why Wiccan Suck was the genesis of Davin's Journal, which led to the genesis of uh, the Obsidian Mirror, and a number of uh, Fluffy Pagans, uh, and two or three other websites that they credit Davin's Journal with them getting started, 
and why Wiccan suck is what got me making Davin's journal. So uh, okay. it all kind of dovetails together. <laughs> there's there's a lineage there. <laughs> so yes, yeah, sir? contact us. Let us know. Um, let us know if you, what you want to hear. If we're not covering it. Um, also, if you've got a few uh, dollars to spare, throw it into the hat. There's donate buttons on the website um, because it does cost real money, especially me with not a job uh, right now. And so, you know, any of that helps. <clears throat> and it, it's costing Joy some time to prepare each episode after we record it and so on. So, I mean... Donations do help a lot, and you know, ten bucks will take off half the cost of a month of hosting. Of, what's the word? That's the one. Yeah. And Brian so, and I don't get anything out of this other than your attaboys. The enjoyment of <laughs> yeah of doing it. it. Um, well, we have fun talking to each other, but we don't we don't take any remuneration. There's no pay. Uh, we don't um, use the donations for other things, but they do go straight to say uh, what? Oh, do you think I'm talking just to hear myself talk? Answer me. Cosmic <laughs> uh, <cost me> routine. <laughs> um, Mary um, wanted to jump in with that. <laughs> okay. Come on now. We're allowed to talk to hear ourselves talk. Otherwise, there's silence sometimes. It's awkward. I mean, plus it also gets down. One thing that that this podcast does that uh, I really appreciate is, and one thing that Davin's Journal and uh, other metaphysical websites that I've been involved in, it allows me to take the knowledge that I've been collecting these last 23 years um, and put it into words to share with other people. I mean, we've got all of this understanding and the epiphanies and the uh, UPG and sudden understandings of this, that, and the other, and it's great, but if we don't share it with people then it's, you know, whistling in the dark. It's good for our advancement, but it doesn't help anyone else. And if it can help anyone else, then, you know, the t- it's time well spent. Mm, definitely. Because um, one of the things I think that still happens with new pagans is that they're starting everything from scratch. Mm-hmm. So any little bump ahead that they can get helps them. Yeah. And it is. I mean, there's there's a flood of information out there. There's so much that you can get very easily overwhelmed with information. And after a while, you get really disappointed because all of the information that is out there where that's easily acceptable, the 101 books, uh, is pretty much all the same information. So getting the next step is almost critical there's a lot of people that I like to think of it as the the books are the apprentice level this podcast and the research that you do along with this 
are the journeyman level. And mm -hmm. when you hit the third degree and start doing your own rituals and your own coven, that's the, the master level. So mm -hmm. it's important to have the basics and have a good grounding in the basics. But when the basics are well and thoroughly learned, you need to step on to the next level. And right now there's, no inform there's very little information out there for that next level. It, yeah, basically, folks, I mean, our show, at least we hope, is the difference between the Eight of Pentacles and the Three of Pentacles. Yeah. Uh, relating it all to tarot again. Ah, tarot, once again. Gosh, who would have um, thunk that we would have related it back to tarot? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it it really does help because, I mean, there is such a confusion of information out there. Um, you also have people who find, like, insert fantasy novel title here, oh, um, and they assume that those are the experiences that are being had by actual pagans as opposed to being simply the story that they are reading. Because mm. um, I know that um, a few people that I used to know got the idea that druids were practicing magic that sort of was in accord with um, I can't remember the author's name but like the Darany Chronicles um, oh yeah uh, the Darany stuff yeah so they that's what they assumed when they were talking to me and I was like um, it's not really what I do um, there might be an occasional druid who does that, but yeah, um, not that one. Yeah. Remember, all of you, that what you read in books is just that. It's fantasy. It's not – there may be a nucleus of truth in there someplace, but normally what winds up happening is that the author will get an idea that blooms from something that they happen to see or experience – and they'll ask, what if, and then what if, and then what if. And this is my process. If I see something like a cat uh, slinking from one tree to another in the night, that's you know memorable enough that I'll go, huh, I wonder what that cat's doing. And then I'll think, well, maybe it's hunting a mouse. Well, why would it be hunting a mouse? Wouldn't it be at home getting food? Well, maybe it's homeless. And then I start thinking about the story of a homeless cat who has to, to actually hunt for whatever and write this entire 5,000-word, 10,000-word fiction about this homeless cat. Well, that may not be the life that the cat is actually leaving, living, but that was what caused me to think of this story. The same thing happens with any of these fiction books. Is, mm -hmm. some, is they see something and it's a catalyst, and then they'll start thinking about what comes next and what comes next and what comes next and filling in detail. And it has no relation to anything that was the catalyst other than yeah, superficial stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the, the most entertaining um, of those that comes to mind is um, 
the Earthsea books by Ursula Le Guin. And I was um, thinking of the the Mercedes Lackey stuff that uh, the the Guardian series with Diana Trigard. I never read it. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Earthsea series. But like that whole series talks about like this this young kid who's who's got this talent that's been unearthed by you know his childhood mentor, and it turns out you know he ends up saving his village and and you know he he basically enters the wizard path because of this one instance where he saved his village mm-hmm. and he's been given the option of the slow and hard route or the the quick and easy route and he has to make the choice and he says well okay the slow and hard route is kind of sucky and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of philosophical, spiritual concepts in that series that are quite brilliant. Um, but, you know, there's elements of the, the actual practice of magic that aren't necessarily true to life. Right. So, you know, you can read those books, and they're great, but don't draw your own understanding of magic from them if, you know you happen to be living like next to a temple or something where you could get the actual information and find out. Yeah. It's highly unlikely that you're going to meet a pipe smoking wizard sitting in a tower, uh, in our pagan communities here. Um, maybe at a Ren fair, maybe that, that would be impressive. (laughs) Somebody's very (laughs) dedicated to their character. (laughs) But now, um, Okay, so we've talked about the the predators, we've talked about the the questionable lifestyles, and with those types of people, you just really have to go, okay, not my kink, Um, let me just keep an eye on it, and if it gets over into dangerous, illegal stuff like doing drugs in circle, then we'll take action about it. Um, What you have next is... um, Stuff that's normal, but just not you. Like, uh, if you're straight, uh, there's going to be gay practitioners. Uh, you know, and you just got to go, okay, um, that's them, you know. And that's how yeah. they live their life. That's what they want to do. And I may not want to go and kiss a boy, um, but, you know, that's what they choose to have as their partner. You know, and you got to just go, okay, because you're going to meet them. You're not going to meet people that are going to be celibate and singing chants in the rectory all the time. Because, frankly, we don't have anything like that, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, But, yeah, I mean, realistically, people are people. They're different from you. Don't assume it fits the same mold. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a, a, a wake-up call, and it's a really rude wake-up call when you, re- you finally get to the point where you feel comfortable enough reaching out to the community. You've done all this internal work and all of this personal work trying to get yourself prepared to be in a situation like that, and the f- first person you reach out to 
is a 12-year-old 15th level high priestess of Gesundheha, uh, and she speaks 12 different languages and, you know, has a secret book of shadows that's been passed down from ancient times to her. And she read three whole books on Wicca, and it's just the best thing ever. You know, and you, you go, <laughs> what in the hell are you on? And there's, it's unfortunately, <laughs> people like that. Yeah, there really are. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, that for me that was the uh the dude that was trying to play druid. Um For me yeah, it was, was uh the people from Atlantis. Uh, oh, who, see. Yeah, who had who wore the py- pyramids on their heads. It's true. If you want to hear our opinions about those, check out our um myths of paganism episode. <laughs> It's rather early on, I think number three. Yeah. And uh, we go into a few of those things: um, Atlantis, Bigfoot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Lots of fun stuff. Um. And then, in general, um, the the majority of the pagan people, pagan population, is made up of, of just people. They're like you. They have similar wants. They have similar desires. They want to do good at their job. They have families to support. Um, they have opinions that are different from yours. Or they could be the same as yours. And they're just, you know, the people that keep the world spinning. And, it's true. you know, if you're going to be friends with somebody like that at work, be friends with somebody like that in circle. And that's where the connections really are. They, they are by far the majority of people that you're going to meet. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, which actually sort of brings me to a point because you you say if you're going to interact with them at work, I'm I'm kind of wondering if we've ever touched on the con- or the topic of um, coming out of the broom closet. I think we've skirted it a few thing a few times, but what I meant when I said that is if you're going to be interacting with normal people at work, then you're going to be interacting with normal type people in the in the circle too. It's not necessarily true. Uh, are you going to be interacting with another pagan at work? But yeah, we can do a show on coming out of the broom closet and all the things that uh, could go wrong and might go wrong, and discussions on you know what your rights are in the workplace and your religion, and then ask the question of well, how much religion is appropriate in the workplace, you know, and and work on it from there. We can do that. Yeah, I see. Because, I mean, I think we've talked about it at some point. It seems like either in our riffing after the basis of an episode of Tarot Talk or somewhere else, we ended up talking about that because it related to something else we were talking about. Yeah, I think it was a, an episode of Tarot Talk. I don't remember which one, though. Listen to them all. Be inspired yes. by what we used to do, <laughs> and then yes. donate to make our shows better. Hey, there's always that. Um, the last type of people you're really going to meet uh, are the really, really rare ones. These are the people that actually have a true calling to be clergy, 
clerics, uh, to be priests and priestesses. Uh, they would be the people that, if you took paganism out of life, they would be uh, the Catholic priests down the street. Uh, the ones that do commune with their gods on a daily basis. The people that uh, actually try to make the world a better place for everybody. Um, the activists, the um, people that go and bless children that are born. Uh, go into the prisons to minister to pagan prisoners and those types. Are the ones who are, you know, counseling people at, you know, the, the end of their lives in hospice care or whatever. Yeah. And these, they're, they're, they've got a really hard burden on them, okay? Uh, and it's many-fold. First off, they're working in a, quote-unquote, weird religion. So most of the mechanisms that are in place to help them in society uh, are, are either not available or are extremely hard to get to. Uh, as an example, um, there was a uh, <clears throat> pagan group that was trying to set up a uh, soup kitchen that I heard about and had all the permits. They were uh, a, a not-for-profit organization. Uh, they had been in existence for years and years and years and years and years, and they were persecuted out of the um, <clears throat> business of doing the soup kitchen and the homeless groups um, because they were of a, weird, of, of a religion that normally didn't do that. The Catholics did it, the Protestants did it, but the pagans didn't. And so they couldn't get the grants that, they, that most of the other soup kitchens could get. Um, they couldn't convince the mundane community that they weren't doing something weird, like sacrificing the bums in the back room. Um, and it, was, it just became a huge thing. And it was really sad because they were trying to do good work. And just because they were they prayed to Dionysus occasionally didn't mean that they you know weren't sincere in their beliefs and weren't really trying to help um, George Bush made a comment that he didn't think witchcraft was religion uh, while he was uh, campaigning back in nineteen ninety eight I think uh, while he was still governor of Texas that comment that one comment caused a problem with the pagan headstone campaign for the military in 2008 where they would not allow Wiccan or Asatru headstones in military graveyards because they didn't think that he would approve of it as commander-in-chief. And they hmm. and the and the and the people that were trying to get these pagan headstones fought years and years and years to get this. They finally won, and when it came out why they kept why the VA kept denying it and kept denying it and kept denying it, they said because George Bush said that. And it was like, what? So just that opinion makes the job much worse. doesn't even have to be official. 
doesn't have to be written down any place. This is one reason why a lot of people are pushing in the pagan communities uh, for a paid pagan clergy. A group of people that can be certified and stamped on the forehead with the seal of uh, cleric uh, so that they can present themselves to the mundane community, everybody that's not pagan, as what paganism is. Okay, So that we can have... Um, I don't know Oberon as uh, being the same, being held in the same esteem as, as Jimmy Swagger, or uh, one of, or um, it's true. Some, you know, somebody being held up at the, you know, getting a statue to this pagan leader standing right next to this one of um, Billy. Oh God! I just drew a blank on his name. Billy, Billy Graham. Uh, no, Billy. That's it. Yeah. Billy Graham. You know, because we got a statue downtown Nashville of Billy Graham, and he's pretty big. And I don't think I'll ever see a statue of Raymond Buckland next to it, or even anywhere. That on would the be continent. an interesting statue. Yeah, it would be. He's Raymond Buckland has done just as much for pagan for Wicca and paganism in the United States as Billy Graham has ever done. It's just he doesn't go out and have you know big uh, prayer conferences in uh, stadiums. <laughs> Can you imagine the Raymond Buckland pagan campaigns? <laughs> That would be, that would be interesting to see, actually. Actually, I would And I'm be, sure Ray would have his face just light up. I can't I believe be, you guys think so much of me. I'd be thrilled to see it. Honestly. I mean, he's the founder of my tradition of Wicca, and it's, it's something that needs to be acknowledged. However, the, the argument is that in order to present the best face to people that don't understand about paganism... Uh, is that we need to have a group of people that are dedicated to doing nothing but representing paganism. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't really have somebody that... You can't have a 12-year-old high priestess who knows 12 languages and has the ancient Book of Shadows being a good representation of what Wicca is to a fundamentalist preacher in the area uh, who is decrying everything about Wicca. But if you had somebody that had 30 years of experience behind them, who was, say, 45 or so, had read multiple books, had read other religious works as well, had studied everything, and knew their subject inside and out, and could debate well with other people, without resorting to ad hominem attacks and but I said so there and stomping the foot, then you would have more respect and being paid to those people and thus to the religion that they represent. Yeah, and I think you brought up a good point there too. Um, the very important point of that interfaith dialogue being, you know, encouraged, you know, because it, it, it does take time to research other faiths and and practices so that you can go into a discussion with understanding, you know, and be able to defend or compare 
your own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I mean, the Catholic Church was obviously trying to do that at one point with JP too, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It it strikes strikes me that it didn't go as well as it could have. Right. I mean, there's been partial efforts. Um, for instance, the Council of Witches in 1975, the ones that came up with the 13 uh, rules that everybody seems to be tossing around about Wicca is a, um earth religion and we don't harm people and yada, yada, yada and all that. Um, the American Council of Witches was an attempt to do something similar, to lay out a codified, this is what we believe for all the other religions. Unfortunately, that group did not stay together. If it had stayed together, it's possible that things would be much, much different because there would have been some sort of central organization that people could come to, to ask about it, to to learn about it, to find resources and things like that. Now what we have is we have the Covenant of the Goddess and other organizations similar to it that are fantastic. Cherry Hill Seminary is another one. That are fantastic at doing this, but it's about two decades too late. And it's also very narrowly focused for the people that are part of their group. And unfortunately, not enough people are part of that group that you can associate them with it. Like Ravenswood down in Georgia... Uh, is not part of Cherry Hill Seminary. But the works that Cherry Hill Seminary is coming out with is just amazing. They had this entire course on uh, pagan clergy and ministering to people and doing psychological counseling with them as a clergyman. You know, And these are like master's degrees equivalent courses that they're coming yeah, out with. Yeah, definitely. Nobody knows about these things. Because they're not out there in the pagan community. They're not, they're not seen as being a needed resource. You know, and that's why, they every, that's why there's so many people that are saying that there should be a centralized pagan paid clergy. Okay. Well, and I think part of that too is because the whole idea um, that seems to be sort of predominant in the pagan community is that we are against organized religion. So, you know, it's like that whole paid clergy thing, that's too much like that organized religion thing we don't like. So let's steer clear of it and not look into it and support it. Um, Because those are things I actually was asked to get myself involved with back in the days when I was, you know, playing Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually liked the idea of it, um, but I personally just wasn't into the whole going into debt so that I might possibly get a job that could possibly pay that back. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and that's an... That's that's you bring up a really good point. Uh, the going into debt part. The one of the the other things that um, is a big push for the paid pagan clergy is that they will be able to devote their time to all of the minutia of clergydom 
and still make a living. Because, I mean, let's face it, I don't care how holy you are, the Pope still eats. He still has dinner. You know, he still has uh, a car. Uh, he, he has still, to go shopping once in a while, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know, uh, he may have people to do it for him. He may have clerics that you know would bow down and kiss his toes to be given the pleasure of driving him around in his car. But at least this pope, at least, still has his own vehicle. That's not a pope mobile, and he still needs to buy gas for it. So you know, asking the leader of a circle of um, 10 or 11 people to not only organize the entire ritual to let everybody know about what's going on but to buy all the candles and all the incense and all the stuff for the cakes and ale and to buy all the tools and the athames and the ritual robes and all of that and to ask them to, to shoulder that expense on their own you know is like how selfish can you be and so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's another reason why the paid pagan clergy is seen as a good thing. Because there is a massive, massive investment that even if you practice by yourself, you have to make. You know, and that, yeah, that has true. to come from somewhere, you know. Well, and one of the things, too, that comes to mind is there's a couple of organizations in Canada that are, you know, ordaining clergy. Um, But they're, again, like you mentioned with um, Covenant of the Goddess and so on, they're dedicated strictly to their own tradition. Um, So in order for someone who's not a Wiccan to get ordained as a pagan minister – they have to subscribe to the belief system that they would be ordaining under. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, as far as I understand, in Canada, you can be a religion of one, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be like an ordained minister. Mm-hmm. That, well, that's, like, that's you know, similar to... would be of any importance. Yeah, it's similar to how the United States does it, where you can believe anything you want, you can teach anything you want, but there are certain offices that you cannot perform without having the paper. Uh, And that's uh, birth, death, um, uh, weddings, and uh, baptisms. Those four things, unless, because they have legal pieces to go along with it, you can't perform unless you have the certificate saying, I am certified minister, blah, blah. Okay? And I just ran up against this the other day because I um, was asked to officiate uh, the vows of a pair of friends of mine. And because I'm ordained through the Universal Life Church, who will ordain anyone... Um, under any title you want to adopt. For five bucks. You could probably be a pope under them. Yeah, you can. Um Actually, a friend of mine, uh, the the way I found out about it is uh, his name was uh, uh, Tuck. His last name was Tuck, literally. And he was ordained, and he paid the extra $5 for the friar title. So he was literally Friar Tuck. It was great. Yeah, it really was. Uh, Synchronicity was just one of those things. But yeah, they'll ordain anybody, and they don't really care what you profess. 
uh, or believe, as long as you believe in um, three basic needs for humanity, and that is shelter, sex, and food. As long as you believe in, in true. That those three items are critical for human existence and that they are a reflection of God, they feel that, you know, as long as you feel a calling to the clergy, that you are already a clergyman, and they, they will ordain you for free. Um, that's and then you one, can order all the cards and certificates for 40 bucks too. Well, you can anything like that you can buy all of this for. But if you need to have the paper for some reason, like the reason I got ordained is because I was doing uh, tarot... Uh, over the phone with uh, a, a, a psychic line and to protect myself from it's it's one of the really weird quirks of American law that if you are somebody that is doing predictions for other people they can if those predictions don't come true and they put a lot of energy and say you predicted that uh, this lottery number would hit and you told them and uh, they went out and invested all their money in that lottery number and it didn't hit and they lost everything the they can come back and sue you for that it's <laughs> one of the really weird things about American law but it's it's there to protect the consumer however if you're a certified clergy member, they can't sue you. <laughs> Interesting. Because it's seen as one of the offices of the clergy to do predictions from God. And so I did that. Yeah, I did that to protect myself as a, a way of making sure that people can't come back at me and get on to me because they were stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the thing too with the ULC is that their ordainments don't necessarily work in all areas. So actually, they if do. You're going to do that? They do. Not up here. They don't. They're not. Oh. They're not guaranteed up here. Okay. Well, um, in, in in the United States, they are. They've gone to to court a number of times, and short of coming up with a state religion. Um, the United States government can't define a what a religion is. Therefore, um, it, it works out that the ULC is a recognized religion, and they can do all of that, and the people that they ad uh, ordain are recognized clergy and can do all of that stuff. Yes, so. and that's one of the things that kind of appealed to me, and then I was – on, you know, then I discovered that well, up here in Canada, apparently it's not an all-encompassing thing. Um, it depends on municipality, it depends on province. It, it's like uh, so much work. Oh yeah, but anyway, um, <clears throat> so a lot of people uh, in the pagan communities have been kicking around the thought that why should we go to an outside organization, an outside Christian organization at that, simply so that we have the paper in our hand to be able to prove to the states that I'm competent to say you're married to somebody, um, which is another check in favor of paid pagan clergy. Because if you're going to have a pagan clergy as a group, 
then you need to provide for their livelihood somehow. Now, Cherry mm-hmm. Hill and uh, Covenant of the Goddess both have ordinations that you can get through their organizations. But once again, you have to ascribe to their beliefs. Uh, any coven of five people or more can issue their own ordinations. But they, in order for those ordinations to be recognized by the United States government, there's a hell of a lot of hoops they have to jump through. Okay, mm-hmm. so the thought is is let's get an organization together like Cherry Hill or like Covenant of the Goddess who can ordain for all pagans and let's give them money to go through all the paperwork and pay the lawyers and do all this work for us like the ULC and therefore we'll just have a, a paid pagan clergy at that point. Then there's the other Would people on the hit. other side going, what? No, that's a violation of everything. And what would you say? Sorry, I, I was I was just thinking randomly. Go on. Oh, okay. Um, but there were a lot of people that once this idea came out, um, went, what the fuck? Because there's an awful lot of arguments on the other side as well. And the arguments start from, well, who do you set up as the clergy of all pagandom? There are so many different beliefs in paganism as a whole that you can't Mm -hmm. start codifying it to any one group. And if you start making it so that it's inclusive, then you get so vague that... Literally, a dog walking on the street or a monkey in a tree could be part of that group. It's true. (laughs) And it gets really hard at that point because you start saying, okay, well, we're a Wiccan group and we're going to have a god and a goddess. Well, this pagan group is, well, we worship Odin, so we don't have a goddess, uh, we just have a god. Okay, so... uh, this, our pagan group can might worship a goddess, uh, but definitely a god. And then the uh, feminists come in, uh, the Dianics say, well, we don't have a god, we only have a goddess. And so now you have to modify it so may or may not worship a god and a goddess. Okay? Well, there you have everyone that exists. Because everyone it is, that exists might or might not worship a god or a goddess. It's so, very true. <laughs> it, it gets really bad really quick. So That the pra- kid with the snot bubbles is, is, is an ordained minister now because oh. he just happened to coincide with the beliefs of that group. Mm. All he has to do is say that he is. And then that 12-year-old um, high priestess with the 13 languages in the ancient Book of Shadows uh, actually is a representative of Wicca. It's true. <laughs> and will be able to perform all the miracles of Marjo, um, whatever his last name was. Gortner? Yeah. Mary came out with it. Got yeah, it information. Yeah, pretty screwed Yay. up. <laughs> but so that's the that's one of the main arguments against it. In order to have an organization that is like that, it would be, have to be so inclusive as it would include everybody. 
then you have, okay, well, let's set up uh, paid pagan clergies for our individual groups. So you have all the Wiccans who are um, paid pagan clergy, and you have all the Asatri that have their own pagan clergy, and all the Druids that have their own pagan clergy. And then you get into the same argument, because this coven may not have a, a god, and this coven may not have a goddess. So you can't say all Wiccans. So that's where the, the Council of Witches came in, and they really tried, and for the time period when they uh, did the 13 laws, they really did a good job for then. It was 1975. Paganism was next to unknown, and Wicca was just starting in the North American continent. It had been around for a while in Europe and England, but it was just starting to get a hold in America. And for that, I've got to give them all kinds of credit. They did the best job that they could. But even all of the people on the Council of Witches, and I've spoken to a few of them, uh, didn't support everything because it was too inclusive. The same problem. <laughs> so that's one of the big things. The, uh, the next big thing is that if you have a pagan clergy, then you have to solicit donations. And one of the huge problems, one of the huge chronic problems of any clergy is when you start mixing money and religion, you get this unholy mass of people who are selling religious offices for cash. And then you have somebody nailing uh, 53 theses to church doors, and you <laughs> have, you know, splits in, and schisms. <laughs> uh, naturally, she's referring to Martin Luther. Naturally. Anyway, <laughs> and that, that was one of the big it, triple entendres. I said 53 theses with a... A theta sound. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear what she said? I heard it, but I don't think that it would record. <laughs> what she said was that she heard me say 53 theses, as in poo. And apparently... <laughs> Most of his most didactic work and his best work was written because he had hemorrhoids and was constipated and couldn't shit. So he wrote sermons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I, I can't shit, therefore I must write sermon. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, I mean... We do say they have a stick up their ass when they're <laughs> a bit noxious. Certainly need one to clear it out. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that where the statement, the shit end of the stick, comes from? Well then. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> he just didn't I, give I'm a shit. <laughs> okay. Oh, that was good. Oh Lord, my stomach hurts now. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is one of the better ones, folks. <laughs> anyway, so then you have something along those lines where people are corrupting their holy offices for cash. And it's not a pretty thing whenever it happens. And unfortunately, we see examples of it constantly. Jimmy Swagger springs to mind. Um, just about Did any... Baker? Mm -hmm. The Bakers? Yeah. The Tammy, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye. Uh, even even uh, Billy Graham for all the work that he did. And, oh God, what's that annoying one? The oh, crap. the guy that uh, was saying that he would be called to heaven if he didn't get two million dollars. Um, I believe you with the lavatory and Martin Luther Mary. Oh, they found his toilet. Okay. Well, we'll read up on that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and Oral Roberts and you know various people like that. Um, it's even, I want to, uh, yeah, I am going to say this. It, Mother, you know it happened with Mother Teresa as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I Chris mean, Hitchens exposed her as a, a, a fraud, a, like a pain-obsessed fraud. Who would take all the donations that she was getting and use them, and they would never get to the people that they were supposed to help. Because she was a big proponent of the uh, perseverance Stop. of poverty. Mm hmm. And so medicines that were donated to alleviate suffering would not get to the suffering because they were suffering. And that yes. started coming out. Oh, yeah. Um, it Hang occurs on. to me that Martin Luther might have written his theses on toilet paper because he didn't have anything else to do with it. Uh, that's possible. <laughs> direct quote from the BBC article what we have found here is something very what rare, rare. <laughs> okay well whatever so you <laughs> so you have business and religion riding together and it's just not a good thing then you have um, well what standards do you train these clergy people to I mean, is it reasonable to ask the 13-year-old who's trying to get a coven together with their friends to study the Necronomicon, the Bible, the Bahagravita, and uh, the, the Satanic Bible? Uh, or do you just give them uh, a copy of Teen Wicca and call it a day? <laughs> I'd say the, for the former. Absolutely. So would I. You know, but I, I would too, but... And then there's where's the formalized training coming from? Do you have uh, email courses like coming out of Circle Wicca and, and the Frosts? Or do you actually have a Wicca 101 um, group at the local store? And who certifies them as authorized teachers of? You know? mm -hmm. And you start getting into a lot of arguments like that. I will say, uh, in the ten minutes that we have left, 
we actually do already have uh, a paid pagan clergy. A lot of people don't realize it, though. Uh, and I'm talking about the ADF, the Ardracoi Nafen. Ardracoi I think they say yeah. it. It's or our, ADF, just for short. Yeah, easier. It's, it's our Druid Order. And it was started by Isaac Bonowitz. And it's it was really good and i appreciate it and i have very few problems with it but at this point i've i've looked at it and it's gotten so generic that it's kind of lost its way in my opinion but for those that ascribe to it hey have fun when you have a druid order that is based on the the gallic irish or celtic druids one of those three groups um, from right around the ooze, and you have them with deities like uh, Amatasaru um, from Japan, and other Shinto deities, and Buddha, and um, African deities, and Egyptian deities all wrapped into it, but it's still our Druid order. When I found out that out, I said, well, how are they still druids? You have to have that flavor of Celtic deities in it in order to keep the, the druid part of it. When you start adding in other people's deities and other cultures' deities, it starts diluting it to the point where it's not what it says it is anymore. And that's my criticism of the ADF. It's one reason why I'm never going to join them. Um, but I encourage everybody to go out there and find it for their own. But at this point, the ADF is actually a paid pagan clergy. They do <laughs> have clergy members, ordained ministers, in the ADF that are paid out of the common coffer of the ADF. I don't know how they they do it or work it out or whatever, but it's it's one of those little factoids that I came across while I was researching Druidism, and I went, okay, not my kink, but hey, y'all go do what you want. <laughs> well, the ADF offers various programs. Like they don't consider um, in in the same way that like. The Ancient Order of Druids in America, or, or the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, etc. They don't see Bard, Ovate, and Druid as three separate levels of the same training. They see them as separate categories of Druidry, of, mm -hmm. of being a Druid. Um, so what they do is they actually offer training programs under each category, so that if you happen to be interested in herbs or whatever, you can specialize under... The, the uh, herbal training program. And if you want to become ordained, you can add to that. Um, you have to take a certain minimum re requirement of training. I can't remember what the, the requirements are, but basically you, you, you do this broad sort of study program that's kind of the basics. And then you add to that if you want to become ordained or if you want to specialize in a 
particular field or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like an online college. Um, I don't know. It, it's actually something that I considered, but then I was like, I don't know. There was a point at which I kind of turned my nose up the the whole Indo-European pantheon thing where, you know, they've got Roman gods and Greek gods and Vedic gods and... Um, yeah, that's kind of what turned me off of it also, is the the mishmash of deities. Cause, I mean, I, mean we, I can see why they would want to do that, you know, so that they can broaden the definition of their ritual format. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it just seems like they're basically um, sort of piecing together parts of other cultures into a format. Like it, it. There was actually a time when I decided I, I took the uh, the basic ritual outline for ADF, mm-hmm. and I started really thinking about how interesting it would be to have like a Hawaiian themed ritual. So I started looking at all the Hawaiian gods from, you know, their pre-Christian existence. Mm -hmm. So I started putting in the Hawaiian gods and spirits into the roles that the ADF fills with their various gods. And I was like, this is actually kind of an interesting ritual now. Um, So, I, I kind of had this idea of doing like a a tropical quote druid ritual, you know, with a conch shell and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know it. That's basically what it seems like to me. But then, I mean, the argument can be made that that's what Wicca is too. I mean, it can be. Um, yeah, and that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother show. I, but in basic, yes, that's that's the logical extreme for Wicca that to get to, and it's what a lot of Wiccan elders work very hard against is that dilution. Um, I kind of had the same reaction when I was looking at the ADF when I was searching around, um, and mainly it was. You know, when they had all the additional deities in there, it's like, okay, this isn't Druidism anymore. This is paganism with a veneer of, of Celtic on it, uh, while using none of the, the Celtic anything. And it kind of struck me because there's a, a quote out of Practical Magic that said, you can't practice witchcraft while simultaneously turning your nose up at it. And that's it. It seemed like that's what was happening with the ADF. But um, I'm sure we're going to get. Well, isn't that where Henge of Keltria came out of too? Was that very same schism? Yes, it was, and that's where the the Henge came from. Because the the OBOD was was first. Um, ADF developed independently of and after the (laughs) RDNA. Um, yes. formed Druids in North America, um, but it was on the other coast when Bonowitz was attending Berkeley and getting his degree in magic and thaumaturgy, literally. Um, 
he developed the ADF, and I think somewhere down the line, because they kept adding in all of these other philosophies and everything, uh, the Henja Keltria said, that's it, we're out of here, and broke off and started their own group. Um, and, you know, I, for those of you that want a very Irish Druidism, uh, Henja Keltria is for you. If you want a very Welsh one, uh, OBOD is really good. Uh, if you want a very mainland Gallic type, uh, ADF or the RDNA are right there. So, just a just a thumbnail for you seekers out there. Um, and I mean, RDNA is is a free order as well. So I mean. There are branches off of RDNE like the Mithril Star that are specialized in their particular way, mm -hmm. but um, the RDNA will will ordain well, I, not ordain, but they'll they'll certify you according to levels and whatnot through a formal training program. Yeah, my own uh, Druidic order, the um, Ardrakhat Nayusne. Probably mispronouncing it again. Uh, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a splinter from the the Hendra Keltria, and a lot of our liturgy was the same. Um, and I, you know, have a lot of respect for the Hinge. Um There were some things that kind of put me off because one of them was the requirement that you start your own grove, and it's like um, if you want to advance. And I'm like, I'm in the middle of the buckle of the Bible Belt in the United States, and I'm transgender, and I'm already pagan, and they are going to require me to start a Druid Grove here. Okay, I'm not made of money. <laughs> I don't think I can do this. So it was kind of off-putting. Yeah, actually, that's kind of the interesting thing with RDNA when I was looking into that. Um, their third degree, whatever title they use for that, is basically, you know, you have to, like, tell them what you're going to do for the pagan community and, and kind of be the head honcho of, of a grove and that sort of thing. So, Well, we could both yeah, I mean this. I mean... <laughs> This is this it's is true, a health big thing for the pagan community. <laughs> it is actually wow. I was I could qualify for third degree already. Yeah, we could. I mean, we don't and actually, have the mithril know. star was interesting too. Um, they tended to be more um, eco activist oriented, and I think they were based in California actually. Um. And what they would do is send you a, a, a data DVD of all their rituals and material and stuff so you could study. Right. And they had this really cool song called Sequoia Semper Virens or something like that hmm. that I used to love listening to and I can't find it anywhere anymore. Because I lent my D, this, the DVD to a friend and never got it back. Yeah, that happens a lot. But anyway... So, so, let's see. Can you think of anything that we didn't cover that we needed to? 
Um, nope. We talked about pagan clergy. We talked about some problem people. I think we're good. Yeah. Just in all, uh, everybody, uh, don't go into the pagan community uh, thinking that the people in the pagan community are perfect because they're not. Yes, I want to keep reiterating that, even so I'm saying it multiple times. Um, Because that was the big one that caused me so much grief, was the realization that they're people. Um, Yes. Yeah, the the big experiences that I've had that, that kind of annoyed me about it was the fact that the books do portray everyone in, in this perfect state of being. And when they talk about it at all, most of the books don't talk about it, but if they do start talking about it, it's, you know, everybody's perfect. Or the ones you encounter end up being those fluff bunny, new age, you know, pseudo Wiccans that are all about love and light and chakras and yoga and so on and so forth. And it, it becomes a very convoluted sort of definition of what that is. Yeah. I do want to, the uh, last thing, because you mentioned this, understand something. You are probably, as you get into the pagan community, going to be called a fluff bunny. Um, most times that is not going to be the case. A fluff bunny, by definition, is somebody that is willfully ignorant and stays that way, despite all evidence to the contrary, and attempts to educate. As long as you're sincere in your lack of knowledge and your efforts to educate yourself, and you're willing to admit that you're wrong and change your opinions as new facts come to life, uh, the fluff bunny uh, appellation will go away pretty quickly. And you'll be a, a seeker. Um, so if you get called a fluff bunny once or twice, don't take it personally. It's that most people who are new come in with the attitude of, well, I've read a book and I know everything about everything. And it's like, you know a fraction of a little bit from one person. And there's so much more out there. Most people will be willing to help you. Some will be ma- making fun of you. So take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I think the three words to remember when you're new into the pagan path are I don't know. Mm. Don't you – know, use that as a question to gain more knowledge. Don't use it as an excuse for not gaining more. Mm. Yeah. Because and... I've met plenty of pagans that do that. You know, I don't know, and I'm just not even going to bother finding out. Mm. If you don't know and you want to find out, find out. That's the best way you can do it. And that's the best way that you can prove to other people that you are sincere is to keep trying and to keep educating. And other than that, you know, always be willing to to change the opinions. Um, You said you were saying something and it caused a thought. Um, Oh, Elders. I don't know. Okay, there are a lot of elders out there. A lot of elders are willing to teach, but they're not willing to teach idiots. Um, most of the people that come at them asking for information are idiots and are fluff bunnies. 
And so if you find somebody that's willing to teach you, approach it as a gift and treasure that information because it is important to the person that's teaching it. Um, you know, be respectful. Uh, one of the things that I suggest quite a lot is listen more than you talk because by listening you're going to get a lot more information. You know, and where you have something to contribute to it, yeah, contribute. Uh, but also listen to, you know, the answers that are coming back. But anyway. Yeah, definitely. Gratitude and humility are really key in, in trying to learn something new. Mm. Um, I mean, I had one student that was trying to uh, get me to teach them Druidism. And I said, okay, here's my website. Go to that website. Take a look at the information there. There's a, a button that says Druidism. Go read all of that information and then talk to me and then call me. And the next time, three weeks later, I saw him, he wanted me to teach him again. And I said, have you gone to the website? And he's like, no. And I said, well, go to the website. A month and a half later, when I saw him again, I, he wanted me to teach him. And I said, have you gone to the website? And he's like, no. And at that point, he proved to me that he can't follow basic instructions. <laughs> yes, I, I have been recently dealing with one like that. I'm so pagan. I'm a druid. Um, and he told me that he'd sat in on a, what basically was a Wicca 101 course. And, oh, and I was like, okay, so what have you done since then that shows me you're actually interested in practicing druidry? Well, nothing. But you and I are alike. We're druids. And I was like, mm, I'm not sure you are. I think yeah, you might be a dino. <laughs> most of the Druid in name only. Yes. Druid in name only. Yes, most of the most of the new people that you're going to meet out there don't want to do the work. They want it handed to them. And unfortunately, paganism is the only religion with homework. You're going to have mm -hmm. to do a lot of independent study. You're going to have to read. You're going to have to think about stuff because UPG and um epiphanies you don't get out of a book. You get those by considering what you know and by talking to the gods and by suddenly realizing that this piece of information that you read in The Golden Bough and this piece of information that you read in Joseph Campbell and that piece of information that you, that's over there that you got out of the archaeology course that you took when you were five years old all relate together and are all the same thing. It's true. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. If you are new to paganism, read Joseph Campbell's Power of Myth. It's the uh, transcript for a really great TV series. Very worth watching. And on that note, we're going to end the episode today. Um, please, wide-worlds-joy.tumblr.com and cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com is um, Brian's. Mine. Um, joy at magicalmusings.net and brian at magicalmusings.net are our email addresses. Um, the website is magicalmusings.net. Uh, come there. There's the 16 Tarot Talk episodes. Uh, it's a tour de force of the, of the tarot. We take uh, one of the pip cards and two of the major arcana 
for each episode and talk about them and what they mean and how they relate to each other. Um, even if you don't want to listen to all of the Magical Musings episodes, which we highly advise you do, uh, the Tarot Talk is worth it in and of itself. Um, they're all two hours and long. And bring a scratch pad because you're going to catch weird stuff we mention that will fascinate you. Yeah, and that's you know, and that's why we allow ourselves to go off on tangents because there might be oh, yeah. information that relates to something else that suddenly clarifies something in your mind and a piece of UPG jumps up, you know. <laughs> it's true. So, from... I remember my... Go ahead. Anyway, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say from all of us here, from Rhiannon and Mary, the goddess of research, and me, um, have a nice time. Take care. Have a good night, folks.